From Ruckus, this is Art of Gravity, a podcast on building new art worlds in the American South and Midwest and how we might do that together. Welcome back. This is L. Autumn Nattinger, and this is also episode six of Art of Gravity. In honor of Black History Month, we are going to rebroadcast the audio from a panel event that Ruckus hosted last year as a part of our Big Talkers series on the subject of amplifying Black artists in Louisville. This event featured Dr. Kalia Story, Ashley Cathy, and Brianna Harlan, moderated by Ramona Dallum Lindsay. The recording itself is not so much history as something that speaks deeply to the history that we have found ourselves grown out of and active participants in. The recording felt just as important to listen to today as it did back when it happened last summer, and while it focuses on the unique racial dynamics in Louisville, it has lessons for art worlds all across the country, so wherever you are, I hope that you find it valuable. The recording itself has introductions for everyone at the top, so I'll let it do the rest. The audio quality gets better as it gets going, so don't be turned off by the way I sound or some echoing that happens for about a minute or so in the beginning. I'll catch you at the end. All right. Uh, Welcome, everybody. I think we are, that was everybody who was in the waiting room, so we're going to go ahead and get started and we'll continue to admit people as they join the call. So welcome to our quarterly Big Talkers event with tonight's uh, subject of amplifying Black artists in Louisville. My name is L. Autumn Nattinger, an editor for Ruckus, and I'm going to take care of a few housekeeping things here at the very top before handing it over to our moderator and the discussion. So after the panel is concluded, there will be a Q&A portion. So if you have any questions throughout the discussion, you can leave them in the chat, and then we'll try and get to as many of those as we can when the time comes. Um, also, if you have any or noticing any like technical issues, feel free to throw those in the chat too or direct message the Ruckus account. And we'll try and figure that out and sort that out as quickly as we can. Um, so first off, I'll do some introductions. Um, our moderator for the evening is Ramona Dallum Lindsay. Ramona is a senior program officer, primarily responsible for the Community Foundation of Louisville's projects, strengthening leaders, artists, and entrepreneurs, as well as responding to timely community needs. As a practicing visual artist herself, Ramona's visionary background equips her to think outside traditional processes to coordinate, design, develop, implement, and manage foundation programs. Through her work, she is developing participatory grant-making processes, inviting those most impacted by grant funding to play a significant role in determining who receives funding. Before coming to the foundation, Ramona was the Director of Education at KMAC Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, and before that, began her career in retail banking before transitioning into public education and nonprofit work. She has a bachelor's in business administration from Florida A&M University and a master's in elementary education from Spalding University. Ramona is from Louisville with a mixed media textile practice and the mother of two children, Zachary and Faith. And on to our panelists. Uh, I'd first like to introduce, introduce Ashley Cathy. Ashley is a curator and multi, multidisciplinary social change artist and muralist. Her large oil and acrylic portraits centralize the experiences of black bodies during and after the African diaspora. Kathy's self-taught artistry started to merge ideas of feminism through the lens of women of color who have influenced her through the art of music, dance, and spoken word. 
These influences allowed her to display her emotions on canvas and in public spaces. Her work has gained local and global recognition from the supporters of her movement. Recently, she curated the exhibit, Black Before I Was Born, a meditation on identity. Kathy's progression has opened up a new project for black muralists with Louisville Visual Arts and the Community Foundation of Louisville. Kathy's activism in a time of uprising has influenced her to use her vibrant artistic style to continue to spread awareness for the black artists in the Louisville area and beyond. Next is Brianna Harlan. Brianna is a multidisciplinary artist and organizer. She works conceptually in multi-form, socially engaged art. Her work is driven by the need to confront how systems violently condition our relational identity and how that influences quality of life, health, and habits. Brianna is a Louisville Hadley Creative and Kentucky Foundation for Women Firestarter awardee. Her most recent residencies were at Oxbow School of Art and Artist Residency at Materia Abierta in Mexico City. She also leads community experiences and presentations, having been a speaker for organizations like Four Freedoms, 21C Museum Hotels, and the Kentucky ACLU. She is currently pursuing her MFA in Art and Social Action at Queens College, CUNY. And lastly, I'd like to introduce Dr. Kyla Story. Dr. Story is an associate professor in the Departments of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies and Pan-African Studies in the Audre Lorde Endowed Chair in Race, Class, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Louisville. She is also the co-creator and co-producer and co-host of WFPL's Strange Fruit, Musings on Politics, Pop Culture, and Black Gay Life an award-winning eight-year running weekly podcast focusing on social justice and pop culture. Dr. Story was also part of NBC's inaugural Pride 30, which featured queer community leaders and other change makers. So it goes without saying that we have an incredible group that has offered to share their time with us this evening. So with my thanks and the thanks of Ruckus, I'd like to go ahead and pass the mic over to Ramona, who is going to get us started. Thank you, Elle. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with all of these wonderful faces and names that I'm seeing on the um, on this wall of squares. This is an unusual time, and I'm glad that we are adapting so we can continue to have relevant and critical conversations here in Louisville, especially around the arts. So to get started, I'm going to jump right into it. We are here to discuss how we amplify Black artists in Louisville. I looked up the word amplify, and amplify can be a verb or an action that increases the volume of sound. For our panelists, I would like to know what does this word amplify uh, mean to you personally or professionally? professionally? And how does that apply to Black artists here in Louisville? Um, I can start. Um, uh, when I hear the word amplify or amplification, um, I think of to illuminate, to brighten, to showcase. Um, I think of showing off, uh, so, so on and so forth. And I think that at this particular time, as in any particular time, Black artists and Black art is vital and crucial to our community development. Um, our development in terms of our own individual identity. I know that art 
has influenced me a lot. I use it uh, when I teach, even though I don't teach art and I don't teach any kind of formal art classes. Uh, black art, particularly talking about the Black arts movement and Black expressions through artistry are really, really vital when working with students who live at the intersections of various identities, such as Black queer folk, Black trans folk, so on and so forth. So amplifying Black artists and Black art at this time and to me anytime is vital and crucial to our community. It uplifts, it inspires, um, it ignites you know, um, that's when I think of black art, I think of that, you know, and amplification, man. <laughs> Thank you, that story. Okay, um, I can go next. So when I think of amplification, I think about self-determination because it's not that black ideas and black labor and black presence isn't being seen because it's being commodified and it's being packaged and it's being consumed really. So when I hear to amplify black voices, it means that instead of our ideas, our labor, our presence, et cetera, being just something for consumption, now it's about us having control, us having autonomy over the way that we get to show up and the way that our cultural contributions are used, right? So yeah, that amplification to me, to be able to, as you said, raise the value on our voices so that they're actually heard. It means that we get the self-determination that we've been kept from for so long. Thank you, that's good. So showcasing uh, self-determination, illumination. Ashley, what you got? Well, I, I definitely kudos both of them, but I really, um, I definitely think amplifying our voices has to do with amplifying our perspective as well as our presence. Because sometimes we're there, but we're not speaking on our perspective and our existence. So it's definitely about, like um, Brianna said, self-determination and being able to end these spaces and whenever, you know, putting your art out there, making sure that it's your actual perspective. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you, Ashley. All right. Now, uh, why is the amplification of Black artists important? And uh, what is the impact on individuals, families, neighborhoods, cities, nations, and even our world when Black artists are amplified? And uh, feel free to include how your personal and professional background influences your response. I, I can start. I don't want to have to start everyone. Um, I'll start. Um, for me, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, art has really, well, Black art, let's put it that way, okay? Black art um, has really had a profound impact on, on me. Um, in terms of identity and thinking um, about who I was going to become, who I, you know, should be in some ways. And it's also framed my life in certain instances. So when I lived in Philly, that's where I did my grad work. They had the mural arts project there. Um, and they had all of these beautiful murals that we would see going to class, going, coming home from class, going to do our daily activities. We would see black folk and black symbolism like 
you know, in this kind of iconography everywhere in the city in every aspect in every corner. And I loved it. I felt like it was me looking at ancestors and, com you know, comrades, folks I'm in the community with. It was beautiful. Um, and then I wanted to know, like, well, are these Black artists who are doing these murals? And some actually weren't. Um, which I which I take issue with. Um, now that cities are finally deciding to include black faces and black images on buildings, particularly in these revitalization neighborhood revitalization projects and and those types of things, I do think that black artists should be at the helm of that. They should be at the table in discussing what mural, what image, what you know. Um, and I think that a lot of cities aren't doing that. It, it, you know, it's similar to what Brianna was talking about earlier um, in the sense of self-determination and also what Ashley mentioned about um, us controlling our own narrative. Um, I think it's important and it's vital. We can't now that everyone's saying Black Lives Matter in this moment in time now have folks who are commissioned to do Black art not be Black artists themselves, right? Um, and I, you know, so I mean, there's there's that part uh, for me that was particularly frustrating when I found that some of my favorite murals there weren't black artists who had done them, and I was I wondered, well, why is that? It just reminded me of the Harlem Renaissance and the white folks in the Harlem Renaissance who were, you know, again having these parties and soirees with black artists, but they'd have the one black artist and the whole party be white. I mean, you know, so this kind of co-optation of our artistry and our genius, really and wanting that genius to, to come through another medium. I just, to me, it's indicative of white supremacy um, and racism. So I do, I think that it's really, um, it's so important for black development, for black children and black youth, especially to see themselves in these larger than life ways, which we are as a people, as a community. Um, and so I think that it's important that if we sh so showcase black art and we have black art in and around our communities, that it should be by black artists themselves. I feel like I completely digress, but I mean, no, you killed <laughs> it. we might not let you be able to start every time because you're taking all the points. I know. I'm so I, I agree. That was, a, yeah, I'm mm. there. Yeah. Um, just to, to definitely could also of what um, Kalia was just saying. I absolutely did not have that experience that you had. I did not. And I am a person that emerged from not enough art experiences, not seeing, um, not seeing anyone that looked like me in the spaces in which I was always in. You know, um, my parents thankfully just kind of like pushed me into certain spaces so, you know, I was there experiencing the art, but I never seen people that looked like me. I never seen art that was a representation of me. And I just found out about the Philly um, mural program after having an experience at Louisville Visual Arts, um, where they brought them down there, brought them down to Louisville to talk to us about it. And I was so emotional because, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice, I was emotional because look at these people that look like me doing exactly what I need to be doing and that I want to be doing and that I am arguing and fighting for every time I have conversations with the art organizations in my city. And they understand because they brought them down here. 
You know what I mean? So it's like when you said that you walked around the city and you were able to see these beautiful, you know, even murals. I mean, living in most areas that I lived in in Louisville, um, there was no public art. And if it were, it was definitely not reflecting me or anyone that looked like me. Um, and if it was, it definitely was created by a white person. You know, I grew up in the performing arts, always drawing, always creating and painting, but no one ever told me that I could do that for a living. Never. So um, I think it's extremely important that we are the ones creating our image and we're the ones who are present and giving our perspective because it's as simple as the way I create, you know, my black sister's faces and their lips and their eyes because it's a reflection of me. And I know that seems so simple, but it truly is. And then also with public art, being able to see a person that looks like you creating has been a transformative experience. I mean, I could go on forever, Brianna, I'm sorry. You good. Um, yeah, I think you guys hit a lot of the layers that this involves already. So maybe I'll just add that, right? So in organizing, working in community, creative community projects, we always talk about the importance of people being able to have the expertise and the ownership of their own story, because that's where power comes from. That's where power and purpose comes from. And you see in so many disenfranchised communities, and especially in the Black community, how since that's been taken away for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Um, that that barrier to being able to have control over your own purpose is where a lot of um, the most damage is done, like the type of wounds that you can't see on the outside. And then people have to work through that for the rest of their lives, right? So w one reason that I gravitated towards art is because in an art class was the first time that I felt like that I was able to tell my story in a way that people would actually be able to see. And that's when I changed my mind. I was like, okay, I'm studying art. That's it. Um, and past that, not only what it does for black communities, but what it does for everyone else as well, because this country, the United States of America has been able to ignore the violence inherent in the way that it was built and the violence that it was built on because we don't talk about it because the narrative is controlled by one group of people, which is white supremacy, right? So once you start having people be able to unpack their own histories in a way that further affirms and validates their humanity, it gets a lot harder to be complicit in these systems that are unethical and that are violent and that are continuing to oppress people um, in ways that really is contrary to the survival of the entire human race, right? So nowhere else in nature do you see people being complicit in systems that hurt their survival, nowhere else, except for in the human race, right? And it's because of this, this greed um, and it's because of this erasure. So if we stop the erasure and people are finally able to step up and talk honestly and have these conversations, maybe we finally could move forward as a people on this planet, um, and I think, honestly, we can talk about the psychology of it, the community psychology, the individual psychology about it all day, right? There's all day, all year, <laughs> years to come, forever, right? But at the end of it, like we do, <laughs> we're due our own voices, like period. Like there's no, 
one, I mean, one, we've contributed so much already without ever getting any credit or compensation, fine. But then also, you know, just like as human beings would do, like why are we even having a conversation about whether black people should be allowed to have control over their own story? Why is that even a conversation in the first place? That makes no sense to me. Um, so that, <laughs> I'm gonna stop that. <laughs> Wow, thank you, all three of you. You um, touched on some points that I, I really wanted to, hopefully that we would get to tonight. And uh, you all touched on culture, psychology, power, and um, our culture shapes our conscious and unconscious beliefs, our actions and uh, how we respond to the, the forces that are around us. And um, I've asked the Ruckus team to put some links in the chat for us, uh, for some of you all, if you wanted to refer back to them after this panel discussion, they're there for you. But uh, there's a psychologist, Dr. Edwin J. Nichols. He's conducted extensive research on the psychological aspects of culture. And then there is, um, I believe that every person who was born in America has been shaped by a white supremacy culture. And uh, Jones and Akun are two other researchers who have outlined 13 characteristics of white supremacy culture. And those, a link to those 13 characteristics is in your chat. But I believe our historical and current visual art ecosystem is shaped by many of those white supremacy culture characteristics, primarily three of them, perfectionism, paternalism, and power hoarding. And perfectionism is when, when we tend to point out the inadequacies in others. Paternalism is believing that you know what is best for others. And power hoarding is believing that there is a limited amount of power and it cannot be shared by others. What are your thoughts on white supremacy culture and the characteristics of white supremacy culture showing up in our visual arts ecosystem? And do you agree with my assumptions? And uh, how have your uh, uh, experiences either confirmed or dispelled the role of white supremacy culture in our visual arts ecosystem in Louisville and beyond. And Dr. Story cannot start. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Kyle Story, we will not make you start again. Um, so I can go ahead, I guess. And I mean, I, I think a lot of people know by now that I'm actually doing a study on this, um, an independent community study on how white supremacy um, shows up in the liberal arts community. And, and white supremacy doesn't just mean racism, right? It means um, patriarchy, it means capitalism. It means a lot of different toxic systems. So I'm doing this because it finally got to a point where Louisville is, I think, is very much a city of appearance politics. Um, and I think playing that game seems winnable for a while. Like you show up the right way, you 
um, make the right project, you get the right grant, you talk to the right people, and it's a small enough city that maybe you could make something for yourself. And a lot of people are just supposed to be okay with that. They're supposed to be comfortable with that. Um, but when you're in these art spaces, arts and cultural spaces, and you're actually experiencing the complete I mean, I don't, I don't know another word other than abuse, um, because it is there is so much power hoarding, and there is so, there are so many lines that are given that you can't cross, and 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 just how where our funding comes from, um, the way that that funding is given out, uh, the type of spaces that. I mean, I could, I could talk about some of the survey results that I'm seeing, and and not just because my opinion, you know, it matters as much as any individual's opinion matters, I guess. But but some of these results in the survey that I'm seeing are overwhelming, like over 90% of people say racism not just exists, right? Because we know it exists everywhere, but that it's common, that it's common here. Sexism, not just that it exists, but that it's common. And, and when you see like these types of numbers and how painful they are, but how people I think in Louisville because of disappearance politics and because we're so close together that we all feel like we have to get along or you can't step on the wrong person's toes or you may never get work again. Um, because we're doing this kind of dance with each other, sometimes I think we forget that really this is not okay. Like none of this is all right. Um, and that these are human beings' lives, right? This is human beings striving for their own self-expression and, and, and creativity and, and career path, right? Like this is some people's life's work. This is, and people have different reasons for being in the arts and culture scene and they have different reasons for showing up the way that they do. But yeah, I think Louisville has a very potent problem with the poison that we allow to just be in our systems um, and that we don't address it because it's not killing us yet, but it kind of is because I've seen people feel so completely dismissed and buried underneath the politics of the city that they don't feel like they can continue dreaming, that they don't feel like that they can continue fighting. And it's painful. Um, Somebody else though. I I definitely felt that I'm trying to hold myself together because it's as though you you spoke through me, you spoke to my soul. Um, that has been my experience here for the entire time I've been in Louisville, and I don't like speaking for all of the artists because we have different experiences, but as black people, just black people, we share trauma, right? And as black artists, we share that same thing. We can have different mediums, we have different, you know, upbringings, and, but, but we are sharing this specifically in Louisville because of the repetitiveness of the white supremacy in all of the spaces. Um, I believe that, you know, it, it coming about just now is even frustrating in itself. 
because all of the times that you have to have these conversations and have to say to people, it's not okay. And only just now, truly just now, are people, you know, acting as though they want to listen or that you haven't said this to them every single time you've been in these spaces over and over, you know, again. And the repetitiveness is even more painful because I feel that we do need to be able to educate each other. And, but it's, it's, it's 2020. So, Kalia. Yeah, um, I, I think that, well, I do. I think that uh, your white supremacist cultural analysis with the points of the paternalism, the power hoarding, like all of that is, is extremely accurate to me. Um, and you can see it. You can see examples of um, the paternalism in the Karen viral videos, right? The viral videos where Karens won't mind their business, right? Where they're meddling and they're in everybody's business and they get to tell you like, hey, you shouldn't be at this park or at this barbecue or at the store or what are you doing over here, meddling, right? So thinking they know what's best and what, and then they're gonna tell you what's best. I mean, so the, that's a real like current pop example of it. And then I remember a couple years ago, um, and I think we had talked about this on the podcast, but the Brooklyn Museum had put, um, a, they had hired a white curator for their African artist or their African, um, well, they were a, a curator of African art at the Brooklyn Museum, uh, but they were a white person, right? So it begs the question of, so there was no African, there was no continental Africans, folks from the African diaspora, African-Americans, nobody else who was an expert in African art that y'all had to hire a white curator. <laughs> in New York. In New York, right? So, um, and it, it shows, um, you know, I've read uh, for years as not being an artist myself, but I've read for years how racist and white supremacist, how sexist, how homophobic in some instances, transphobic in some instances, that the art world can be, right? Um, charging a whole astronomical amount of money for different types of art, different types of installations, exhibits. Uh, the people who are curators at museums have these same ideas, have been socialized with these same notions. And so, um, oftentimes, and what's a, sh a sin and a shame to me is that people who have galleries and spaces or buildings, they don't naturally think of Black artists or Black art to put in those spaces. They, their mind immediately goes to, oh, well, I know my one friend, she's a painter and her paintings are trash, but me and my husband buy them because we have, you know, all this wealth. <laughs> so we love them. And so you should show them in your gallery. Right. Uh, and, and again, the person who owns Go the in. Space, it's no shade, but the, the person who owns the space or the gallery doesn't even know anything about art, right? They just have the money and the wealth and the access to create a space. And then they think that it's a very timely, fun, festive thing to do to create this, like, you know, art deco, you know, new age type of venue for creatives and they're going to be all white and it's like and so there's not a, a moment or a pause for a person to say hmm i wonder how many black artists are in louisville i wonder how many black artists would be willing or, or willing to get paid so i could commission a piece of art for them or um i want a painting done and i'm not going to go to my friend of a friend i'm going to actually do research and find somebody who is really quality art to do it and they're going to be a black artist i mean so on and so forth so i see that i mean i think that academia is the same type of thing with the white supremacy um and so art the art world is no different and 
the mainstream art world makes these huge, awful uh, decisions and declarations which affect grassroots art and community artwork, you know, and then community creatives as well. So if you have a place like a Brooklyn Museum who's like, we're going to hire a white curator to do the African art. And this was in 2018, right? Not in the 70s, right? Not, not in the 40s. This is 2018 they did this. So if you're having, right, a museum in New York City hire a white curator to do and install African art and African artists and exhibits, then there's a huge problem with at the community level and community creatives with them having access to showcase and display their art and certainly to get paid for that art, right? Um, there's an idea that if you use black artists that they can just do stuff for free, right? I'd like you to do this piece and, you know, and out of the kindness of your heart, no money, even though we live in capitalism, you don't need it, right? I mean, cause that's what rich people do who have money. They act like money isn't a big deal or people don't need to get paid cause they're always paid. So, <laughs> it, you know, so those conversations to have are so difficult if you're an artist to have that with someone to pay me for my art. Um, if you want this done, this is how much I charge. And then for people to kind of say, well, I mean, really, does it have to be that? This is a community building. and. So being guilted, right? Uh, people who are committed to community, who are black artists that are committed to community uplift, they often will get exploited. Even if they say, we want your work displayed, we don't wanna pay that much for it though. Or can you give us the hookup because we're a community organization though, right? So there's those things too, those pressures, I would imagine. Wow. The, one of the issues of being a panelist, a uh, moderator, is that I'm not supposed to be really interjecting, but asking the questions. So I'm trying to hold back on interjecting right now. Uh, that telling me I can interject. Um, you, you all bring bring up some some very real points and examples of the white supremacist culture in, in our arts ecosystem. And one of those, I think one thing that comes out of uh, paternalism and, um, and that perfectionistic uh, belief is that because you know what's best for others, you can choose the one token to serve in the role of, you know, I've, I've diversified, I'm including others, I've got this one artist that I invite to every panel that's awarded, every commission, uh, but they really don't have, they haven't, they don't have the power to make choices or decisions that can impact change our lead to real change in our visual arts ecosystem and our arts and culture system at large. And I think that that's something that we have to be very aware of uh, as arts leaders, arts administrators. I'm in philanthropy now. I'm representing the funding side now. So how do we actually shift that power so those so, so other voices can be authentically and accurately heard without us tying a lot of strings to that funding or to those opportunities. Um, 
I wanted to start by talking about white supremacist culture and those characteristics because I believe they are the root to a lot of the barriers that prevent the amplification of Black artists in Louisville. And um, um, Ibram X. Kendi is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist Anti and Stamped from the Beginning. And one of the things that he says is that in order to be an anti-racist, you have to confess the covert and overt uh, racist practices that you're employing. And again, there's a link in our um, in the chat. They just put back up, uh, but talks about what are some covert and overt racist practices that we see. Um, I personally think that one of those other characteristics of white supremacy culture is the right to comfort. Brianna brought it up somewhat when she talked about our appearance politics. People without power want to ensure that those with power remain comfortable with the decisions that they make so we don't always challenge and push back. And then those who have power believe they have the right to remain comfortable, that they should not be called out on practices that are overtly and covertly racist. So um, what overt and covert behaviors have you seen? And Brianna, you've probably had a lot come up in your survey. I would love for you to share some of those but what practices are actually taking place in Louisville's arts and cultural scene that are barriers to the uh, amplification of Black artists in this city? And again, it's okay to make people uncomfortable because that's the only way that we can make change is to be comfortable with the discomfort um, I think that, and, and even saying that, I think, you know, you opened the door to what Brianna was kind of speaking about when it comes to um, being afraid that you will either be discredited or punished or lose work in the future based on you just fighting for others. I have personally been able to, and I say infiltrate, um, certain areas because um, I use that word because I believe I'm, I'm allowed into spaces because they think of me in a certain way that I'm going to be a certain way that my art is going to be a certain way that I'm going to be okay with being the only one and then when I'm allowed into these spaces they understand that I'm not you know, I, I want to enter certain spaces so that I can then pull other artists in and we shouldn't have to do this because it takes so much from the art itself because the whole time you're, you're not focused on the work, you're focused on why aren't there other people that look like me? 
I've been in situations where I cannot even focus on how amazing this opportunity is because of the guilt of me being the only one who has it. You know, I've specifically been with Ramona in experiences where I'm just, I'm enjoying it and I'm thankful, you know, for getting to have this experience. But I also know so many artists that deserve to be here even more than me. And it makes me feel, um, and it, it, you know, it, it lets me know even more that this is being done on purpose and for a reason. And I've experienced it because I'm there, I'm in the spaces where they think it's okay that there are two of us, you know, where they're like, look, we invited, you know, Ramona Lindsay and Ashley Gathy or Brianna, and this is okay. And this is good enough. And it's not, that is supremacy in itself. Like there are more artists, just like there are more white artists and there are other artists of color and that are not being represented and their voices are not being heard. Therefore they're being suppressed and even deeper livelihood, you know, there are people that are meant to do this. And I feel that they're losing all steam because of that uphill battle. And then also having to depend on another artist to open the door for them when they don't have the power to do that. Thank you, Ashley. That's the story of Brianna. Yes, um, I was gonna defer. Like I'm, I know how it functions into um, this happens in academia, um, where you know um, you have one expert in queerness, one expert in black queerness, another expert in queerness, feminism, blackness. So that's me, um, and it wears me out. You know where, um, and I've pleaded. I mean, we can't invent tenure track lines, stuff like that. I'm, you know, me, because I'm not an artist, the thing that seems relatable to what Ashley and what you were saying to me is academia and how this idea of diversity and inclusion always includes just one, right? So you have one gay, one trans person, one black person, right? And they know none of those people and participants can have multiple identities operating at the same time. They always have to be the one person um, who can do this thousand and one things. And so that adds the pressure, that adds the fatigue, that adds exploitation to the task at hand. So if you're in a space where you feel like, wow, I'm really feeling privileged to be in this space and this is great, I got this opportunity. Well, now it puts more pressure on you, right? Cause you're the only one and now you're gonna be the representative of the black art exhibit or the black piece in this particular instance. And how, how does that feel? Right, it doesn't feel good. You feel as if I would love so more many of us to be in this room, but I have to do what I have to do because we're not in this room. And then at the same time, feeling anxious about what, you know, the work is going to come across as, what people are gonna say about it, um, so on and so forth. And it seems as if the art scene here in Louisville is doing that very thing, um, which is really, really problematic and unfortunate to have one or two folks in a space and 10 other folks who are like kind of mirroring the same in identity. Um, so yeah, that, that really needs to change. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm gonna try not to cry. <laughs> so 
Yeah, Ramona, you mentioned some of the stories that I'm getting now, but just to back up a little bit, some of the stories that I've just heard throughout my involvement in the community work and, you know, the arts and culture scene in Louisville of people that are so talented, like so talented where they'll leave and immediately get recognition and praise um, and opportunities that are so shut down and controlled and boxed in here that they are forced to leave. But then when they come back, they're a Louisville champion because, oh, look what, look at this talent that came from Louisville, right? Um, and I hear that frustration all the time of people saying there's nothing for me here because it's already set up. Like who's allowed to win is already set up. And it's not for black people. It's just not. Um, and then to also speak to Dr. Story's point is if these institution and institutions and art spaces feel like they have gotten the best one, which we won't even unpack that type of thinking. <laughs> um, if that's how they feel, then why aren't they paying them? Why aren't they giving them autonomy over their voice? Why aren't they grateful and humble, right? Like, why is it that after you prove you're good enough to be in their space, you're still not good enough for their respect? You're still not good enough for equity and equality? Um, yeah, that's, that's one thing. But then also, yeah, to go to the, the surveys um, that I've been getting, actually the public forum that was done on Instagram that was supposed to be made as a space for people to realize, you know, because in this capitalist rat race, we feel like we are, we're carrying all this on our own and we're supposed to, because that means that we don't organize and we don't make things change. But that public forum was supposed to be so people could break out of that, you know, to air this stuff out, let it come to the surface, instead of just holding it tight to us and, and just trying to get by with it. And I was getting so many people sending me messages for two days, nonstop. Like I would take a nap, I'd wake up, there'd be, my inbox would be flooded. And there were so many of these stories of people talking about how they have been abused or violence has been done against them. Um, there was so much pain that I actually just was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta stop. Like, that's how the survey came. Cause I never, I wanted us to talk about these things, but I, I didn't have an organized plan at first. But there was so much that I had to, like I had to say, okay, people, there's a survey now, please stop sending me these things, because it was getting to the point where I couldn't function. And it just off of me posting in my Instagram stories, hey, does anybody have anything that they need to say? That I'm, that there is this nonstop outpour of grief and pain and rage and also excitement because people are realizing that like, they don't have to be alone with it maybe anymore, or that there will be somebody that is willing to hear them since the power isn't willing to hear them. Maybe somebody else will, maybe they're not, maybe they are worth hearing in the first place. We're gonna go through these surveys and we're gonna do qualitative analysis on all of them to kind of really dig into these trends of, of issues that happen in the Louisville arts and culture scene. 
But I can tell you, like, the amount of, like, this is a, a human issue, like, for people to be treated this way. Never mind just, like, career expression, you know, money, whatever. But the fact that people are being treated this way is disgusting. And it is not, it's not permissible. So we gonna get this together because we don't have any other choice anymore. We can't. Thank you, Brianna. And Brianna, when you say we are gonna get this together, you don't mean. I don't mean me. <laughs> you don't mean, and you don't mean Brianna. You don't mean black, black people. people. You mean we as a mm -hmm. city? Mm -hmm. You mean we across all race, gender, economic backgrounds, belief right. systems? I think I think that's what you mean when you say we. Mm -hmm. Louisville, Louisville, mm -hmm. and that no one can be excluded from the conversation right. because we are all impacted by the abuse and the harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we also hear allies talk about all the time in movement spaces, what can I do? How can I show up? Show up in your daily life. Show up in the spaces where you work. Show up in the spaces, like if all of us did that, there wouldn't be no problem, right? Don't just wait for a movement. Like this is not a moment. I think people are waiting for this to be over, for a demand to be met, for us to continue on. No, this is work that we need to do. And, and I mean, we should have done it a long time ago, but it's getting to the point now that if we don't do it, like, are we seeing the world? Are we seeing the state of it? We got, we got to wake up. We got to get busy. This is not optional for anybody. We're going to get it together. We're going to get it together. And it's going to be uncomfortable at first. Mm. And it's probably going to be uncomfortable for a long time. But I think we have to be committed to continue to move in the discomfort. Not mm. to allow the discomfort to keep us. To move us. Yeah, to move us. Ooh, that was um, a quote right there, Ramona. I was with my mother the other day and she's been having, my mother's 78, she's been having a lot of back pain. And she said, my back hurts so much. She went to the physical therapist and the physical therapist said, you can't lay in the bed. You gotta get up and keep moving for the back pain to stop. And she said, but it hurts so much just to move, but she's got to move. And I think that's the same thing for us in this arts and cultural system that knows that we've all have been impacted by this white supremacist culture. In order for us to move out of it, we have to work through the pain and keep stepping. We'll be back after a quick break.
Um, Dr. Story, this was not a question that I sent you all, but I'm going there. Dr. Story brought up uh, curators. And in our art scene, curators are the ones who basically say, this is the art that people need to see. They're cataloging it, they're uh, putting their stamp of approval on it. But when you look at Louisville, I'm glad that Ashley has given herself the title of curator because she is, she's just curated an exhibit. But I cannot think of other black curators in this city. And uh, I had a, I was reading an article about what Dr. Story brought up about the white curator of the uh, at, 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 uh, of the African uh, art. And in this 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 uh, this black curator says. Uh, that in fact, white curators who take the time to properly think out their exhibitions and make them as respectful as possible with as many of the represented voices included as possible. I appreciate their efforts and dedication to showing this art and these artists. But what bothers me is an artwork, art world plagued with institutional racism, which results in the lack of black curators and thus a lack of shows about black and African art curated by our own community. It doesn't bother me that there are white curators that are interested in working with this type of art. It bothers me that they seem to have the monopoly on curating this type of art. It's a backwards idea to me. How can we change that? Because I think that label or title of curator has to be behind your name before someone respects you as being able to identify Black artists and Black arts movements. And so how do we remove that barrier? What do we advocate for to help get more Black people uh, into that space, to that curatorial space? And it's probably more of an Ashley and Brianna question. Uh, Dr. Story, you might be able to throw some stuff in there, but with their, with their background in the visual arts, I'm wondering what they're thinking, what they see. I, um, I've had some really bad experiences trying to even become a curator, which, um, started, you know, a long, long before the Black Before I Was Born exhibition. But to specifically speak on that one, that came about because someone else offered me an opportunity to do an exhibit, an exhibit, a solo exhibit for Black History Month. And I was like, no, there are so many other artists. And People can't wrap their head around that. It's like, I'm not rich, I'm struggling. I'm an artist, you know, I'm, I'm out here doing the exact same thing as everyone else, hitting the pavement. But it makes me sick to my stomach to, to think that we have all of these galleries. And I did a survey for Black History Month 
you know, just like, oh, this is our month, you know, at least we'll have, you know, all of these shows that will at least highlight artists. So then throughout the year, then people will see them and then they can go forward and, and be in all of these spaces because we opened the door for that one month. But instead I saw, I saw galleries that just didn't have any art. They were like, you know what? We ain't doing anything this month. That's it. Whatever we had the last few months is what we're gonna do. We start our year in March. That's what I noticed. Let's just talk about not enough black art. I mean, not existent black art, but we don't even start until March. And then um, there was the core exhibition, which I was really happy that was happening, but I also felt like, you know, this is one. And before that even came about, for three months, I went around and asked gallerists, arts organizations, please let me curate an art exhibition for Black people speaking about our existence of being Black before we had the opportunity to choose, you know, before, you know, we say anything, before, any, before anything. Um, and I was, I was um, told no every single time in so many different ways, nicely, you know, all these different ways, but you know, and they gave me all the different excuses. And like Ramona said, I didn't have the curator behind my name. So you don't have the respect. So you can't possibly know the black artists in the city or be able to gather any together. And that was hard by itself because we, you know, sometimes don't believe in ourselves because of what they continue to tell us, you know? So we're afraid to even come forward. Is, is this really gonna happen? You know, so I had to go from space to space, but I refused. I was like, I refuse to put more of our art in avant-garde spaces. I saw Toya Northington talking about that and how um, it devalues your work. And I've known this for a long time and, you know, how I wouldn't put my art in certain spaces and blah, 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 because it would be seen this way. And that is, you know, white supremacist ideology in itself. But this is where we have to, this is how we elevate our work. So I was like, okay, I need to gather the artists, gather the work and have it, you know, do everything right. And I still couldn't get in the space. So instead, you know, I was able to use um, Roots 101 because he had the space and he was willing, he, he heard us, he heard me crying that they need to speak and 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 why can't we speak i'm sorry i'm starting because this is emotional for me why can't we speak in our supposed month you know and we couldn't even do that and then you know the exhibition happened and then covid and now people are starting to act like this exhibit that i put together got so much respect but it didn't you know i had to beg people to come people wanted to set up times Gallon on say not people, white gallerists, white art administrators wanted to set up times to come to to view the exhibit, but not for the opening. It's as though they said, We'll come and look at your art, but we will not be present to meet the artist. We will only talk to you, Ashley. And that's it. 
And it, it just further, and I don't know, Brianna, you could probably elaborate on this. I'm probably not. I'm just, I know that the steps that need to be taken are allowing more Black artists, more Black art administrators, and people of color to be curators at galleries that already exist, art spaces that already are there, you know, as well as us having our own spaces. But I mean, there's this thing called guest curators, you know, and how do you get to know who the Black artists are, you know, if you don't have, you're not going to their homes, you're not in the bars where they go to, where their art is hanging up. Or, you know, you don't know them personally. The only way to find artists is to go where they are. And I always say this when people ask me, where are the Black artists, Ashley, then? Since you're so angry that they're not here. And I say they're in the same place white artists are. Creating, trying to get their art out there, expressing themselves, but knowing in the back of their minds that they're only going to choose one, you know, or that... It, it's going to take another black person to bring me in and hopefully that happens for me you know so like with me creating the the black before i was born in cyberspace i saw that as more of a a space for us since we don't have a space in the world you know our space has been virtual because i could not get our black art on white walls I'm sorry that was so long. Thank you, Ashley. No, good. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I got a couple points, so bear with me. One, that this goes so deep that it's not just that there aren't any Black curators. It's also that white curators that recognize this is an issue and that are willing to give space, even when they are willing to give space to Black artists with autonomy and let them control the direction and the way that their work is seen and marketed, they are silenced. Right. That's how much they don't want Black artists to have control over their own voice. And then, in the survey that I'm doing, there were some people that could name, we know that, <laughs> sorry, my mom just sneezed really loud. Um, we know that, we know that um, Louisville is one of the most segregated cities in the country the Ninth Street Divide, right? So in the survey, some of the results have said, even people that could name a black space or a space where black art was welcome, a follow-up question was, can you name one that isn't west of or close to the Ninth Street Divide? Hardly anyone could. So to your question of what should we do to start getting the space that we deserve, I think the answer is to stop asking for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've been asking for what should be ours for a long time. And I think there comes a point where if the answer is, if their answer is no, then their answer, then like, we just need to stop asking. Like, cause no isn't really an acceptable answer. Like we're not five years old to ask for a toy from the store, right? Um, and you talked about that paternalistic culture of people thinking they know what is best because they have privilege, um, which I would argue that it's the opposite because they don't have cultural competency. Um, but that's a whole nother topic. 
So part of what I'm trying to do with this organizing of information from the arts and culture scene is prove that there's a need and then based off of that need make demand. Because if a community says that they need something, well, it's no longer up to you to say yes or no. It's not. Um, and if you think it is and you don't want to be accountable to the community that you claim to be providing for, well, then we got a problem. Um, Y'all don't want no smoke, no. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and there's also the, and actually I'm glad you said, like you created a space when you saw that there was none. Um, black people have had to be resilient and innovative for, forever in this country. And we're gonna continue doing that. But also, you know, I also recognize you saying that we shouldn't be on the fringes. We shouldn't just have to be in avant-garde spaces. We shouldn't just have to make do. And I completely agree with you. And it's time for us to stop. That's, a, that's also a form of being complicit with white supremacy, of, of saying that their no is acceptable, that saying that their no is like something that we will tolerate. And, and when I said that earlier, that we're going to get this together, like, and Ramona, I'm glad that you said, we as in the city, that's true, because that no has to be as painful for everyone as it is for us. And one reason why the Louisville arts and culture scene is not thriving as much as it should, because we have all the talent that we need to be a powerhouse in the arts community nationally. And the reason why we're not is because we're letting people with power and no expertise, no awareness, no competency, no qualifications, make the decisions about what's going to be seen when and how where if we actually let the talent that was here flex to their potential that would benefit the entire city that would so yeah my answer to that question is that we need to stop asking for things that would benefit all of us and we need to stop asking for things to change that are hurting all of us and we need to start demanding and we need to start holding people accountable to those demands. That's it. I muted myself. Thank you. And I was uh, reminded, and I always am going to give honor and respect to those who have come before me, to my elders, and Miss Elmer Lucille Allen has reminded me that she was the curator of the Wayside Christian Missions uh, Expressions Gallery for 12 years. That was one of the few spaces where Black art could be consistently seen. So I thank Miss Elma Lucille Allen for paving the way for, for that work and for many of us being in the spaces that we are currently in now, because if she hadn't done that work, we wouldn't be as far as we are now. She's built on that foundation. So, and and I, I want to continue to build on what Miss Emma Lucille Allen and the artists like her that have come before her and been trailblazers, the Black artists have been trailblazers in the community. But we cannot stop where we are now. We have to keep, keep pushing. We have to keep growing. And I'm, I was supposed to stop right now for Q&A, but I got one more question. And since I'm the moderator, I'm going to ask my one more question. And then if we have time for Q&A, we'll go Q&A. 
My final question is what, because some people might be thinking this, and I want you all to address it. What dangers lie in amplifying Louisville's Black artists? And why do the potential outcomes justify the risk? Because there are some dangers to giving, to empowering Black artists to say and operate with their own agency. So what, why do the potential outcomes justify the risk? Well, I think there's, I mean, I think there's tons of risk. I mean, we've seen as if past is prelude, folks like Paul Roberson um, and a lot of like black actors and actresses um, during the whole communism scare and the red scare, if you will, uh, were kind of blackballed and ice and kind of thrown out of the industry because of their political associations with being committed to black people, black communities, black empowerment. And so they were seen as communist sympathizers. Um, they were isolated, they were targeted. Um, I think that even right now, that is a really big concern. People dox now, people find out where you live now. Um, everything is easily accessible through the internet. And so the, the only pause in the amplifying black artists to me would be that, would be um, making a black artist or a black art community feel as if there's targets on their backs, um, that they'll get doxxed by white supremacists and, and, and folks like that. Um, so that would be the only pause that I feel like that's a real um, and true danger that has been present in our past, that's currently present now. Um, we know that activists, this happens to them as well. So anybody that's in the business of amplifying what the black community needs, how the black community should be viewed, um, what white supremacy is doing to the black community and black people, um, there is a potential for them to be doxxed, targeted, uh, harassed, um, having doors closed to them um, and opportunities closed to them because of these things. Um, but I think that it's very necessary. It's still very necessary, even with that being a reality, amplifying black artists and black voices is so important and, and so vital. I think the dangers are the discomfort you were talking about earlier. But, see, I don't really see these as dangers. Um, yes, people are going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's, it's not going to be a good time the whole time. But also, like, giving people their rights shouldn't be, um, I don't know. I, and I hear what you're saying, Dr. Story, about, you know, white supremacists targeting people. But if the city is upholding this, this new path, this movement, this way, it's, it's not just Black artists. And this is why it cannot be just Black people vouching for Black people. This is why it has to be the city. This is why it has to be everybody involved um, speaking up and out about these things. Because when it's the community dem demanding something, that takes away or it lowers significantly the risk that that one whistleblower is taking, right? Because anybody who's standing up to tell the truth, like, especially if they're doing it on their own, that's not a good time. And then it's, it is risky. It's very, very risky because one person shouting can be targeted, could be discredited, could be gas, like, People could gaslight them. You know, there are so many ways of, of unraveling that, right? Um, but if a community stands up, 
then then what danger are we talking about at that point? And I mean, maybe it's the type of danger that we see around the Confederate statues where people will, you know, white supremacists or people that are loyal to the Confederacy, um, you know, the traitorous losing side of the Civil War. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Will protest back or they will fight back or whatever. Um, we just got to decide. We got to make decisions. We got to make decisions. And then whatever risk that, that comes with, we have to take care of each other and we have to keep each other safe and we have to walk together. But to say why it's worth it to give people human autonomy, human rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as our country likes to say, um, because it is. <laughs> because it is worth it. I mean, what else is worth it? If we're not on this planet to do that, then what are we here for? I agree. I, I, um, I think there are, uh, the word danger for me is, I kind of am addressing it in the way that I guess Brianna is saying, but I do feel there are discomforts. I feel there are retaliations that have happened that will continue um, that, you know, we have to help to, I say, lift up the weight and carry it together as opposed to it all being on a certain group of people, like it only being black people that are speaking about this message to other, you know, allies, for example. Um, one of the dangers that definitely, I guess, at, like again, danger, um, that I feel is public art being defaced. This is something that continues to happen, specifically with like Muhammad Ali going up in the city. Um, people continue to deface the art. Um, I believe other ways you know, that there's this, you know, I would say retaliation more so is the stress and the anguish that it puts on those people who are doing the work. You know, if we all are, if, if we do this as a city and it, it is just as painful to other people as it is to us, then it won't be that much of a danger. I, I completely agree with that. This is how we come together and protect each other so that we can move forward because it's not just the benefits of Black people. Black art is a benefit to history. We are telling our story because our story deserves to be heard. So many times, no, not so many times, I'm sorry, American history has existed on one perspective, one perspective solely. And then it trickles in little perspectives and we have to learn about it later on in life when we're 30 years old and understand why we have these epigenetical issues, you know, that are coming out in all these different ways because our history has been flipped, you know, and even when we think we know, we don't quite know. Art also teaches us our history. Um, working on a few projects, you know, that specifically help with educating artists on skills. So then they do not have to ask, they can step into the spaces they deserve to be in. And then also making our art amplified by putting them in spaces like um, 
Dr. Story mentioned, I want kids in Louisville to have the experience that she had in the way of waking up, you know, just going to school and seeing that, that same art that looks like you, that, you know, just gives you that feeling that public art does, that pride. Um, and then art in art spaces, knowing that we're allowed to go into these spaces. My family, some of my friends, you know, they've been to 21C or they've been to other spaces in the city, but they don't quite know how to exist in some spaces because they're not as open to us. Or how would we be there if there's no Black art there to invite us? So I've also noticed that, you know, a lot of that is the dangers are being left out of the conversation by people just sending emails directly to, you know, the people they want to know the information, being excluded from information. You know, we don't control the information as much as we think we do. And having that control can be dangerous as well. Um, as far as opportunities not being presented, shared information um, not going around in the right formats. That's the only, I don't, like, again, I, I, I feel that if we all come together and it becomes a us issue, other than a them issue, then, then we'll be protected. Help protect us from these dangers of being Black artists. Thank you, Ashley. All right, we have eight minutes left for questions. Um, if anyone has a question that they would like to ask, please put it in the chat. Um, I also want to bring up that uh, earlier Daniel Falscraft, uh, that who I consider an ally to Black artists, has put the link to Brianna's survey uh, in the chat box. And this survey is not intended just for Black people, it's intended for Louisvillians to share their experiences. So I invite you to go into um, Brianna's survey to help uh, gather this information. I had one question that came up. Um, it, it says, uh, I hope we get to talk about Gil Holland and other developers. What is our collective duty to stand up to developers? And I just want to say as a community person who is looking at responsible community development, I think responsible development is needed in many communities, especially West End communities. You can't get rid of vacant and abandoned properties without developing them, but you can develop without pushing out the historical residents. So how do we make sure that this development is done responsibly and how do we uh, uh, encourage developers to work in a way where they honor and respect the rights of historic residents? So I think when, it, okay, so if we're saying what we want, right, and we know that democracy at its core is active citizens basically shaping the type of country that they want to see, right? Active, right? Not our government is going to take care of us, let's just vote, right? But actively advocating and pushing and, and making sure, you know, it's that accountability to each other and to ourselves. So if that's what democracy is, 
if capitalism, uh, and if we agree that we're a democratic country and we like that, if capitalism starts to threaten the people's ability to carry out their self-determination, then we have to deal with it, right? So, and, and, and I'll go back to when I, when I was saying that, you know, we have to start making demands and holding people accountable. I don't mean we have to tell people how to do their jobs. I'm not a curator. I'm not trying to tell a curator how to do their job. I'm not a developer. I'm not trying to tell a developer yet. I'm not trying to developer, tell a developer how to do their jobs. But if we have standards as a community for equitable practice, then that is what we have to be able to push people to uphold, period, no exception. Or we're not a democracy. So, so you're saying, so what I hear you saying is that we need policies and systems in place that make, that protect uh, equitable practices and equitable, equitable development. And if those policies and systems are not in place, then we need to advocate for those things. Right. But okay. again, but advocating means that the power stays where it is and we're just Asking. trying to convince them. We're trying to make a case that they should do this in a way that is ethical, which is still a problem. Right, it still gives them the right to say, well, no, I don't care if it's not ethical. I don't care if it's hurting our community. I'm gonna do it anyway. So, right, and if the laws and policies aren't, aren't gonna be in place, what can we do as a community to add pressure, collective pressure in order to make people who will not practice ethically uncomfortable? Because as you said, power likes to be comfortable. Well, what can we do to change that? If they will not wield their power responsibly and accountably, well, then we have to make them uncomfortable. I think we have one question. Uh, it says, how can a new public artist become seen to the black curators if you are not in the West End? You might be known for your work on one side of the, on, of the spectrum, but how do you get noticed on the other side? So to me, that question is saying that all black artists aren't in the West End and that we're not a monolith community that just exists in one geographic area. So how do we expand what it means to be a black artist in Louisville? We have to take more spaces so that we can be seen in other spaces. Mm -hmm. And speaking more to artists, we have to be willing to come together and dispel the, the theory that there can only be one because, and there's so many, there's so many opportunities that can be spread out we just have to know that and then there have to be more opportunities so we don't feel like we have to go to this one area to find the black people because i i believe that that area needs to be nurtured there are there are other artists all over the city in all you know in all neighborhoods but how can they be seen is to me is you going into you know getting into spaces where 
um, black artists exist together or also us taking more space. I don't feel that is something that you or I have a lot of power to do. I think we have to take the spaces. Like Brianna, uh, Brianna was saying, you know, it's, it's not about asking because the only way to do that now really is to ask, you know, uh, well, you know, I don't exist in this, you know, area or for me, you know, I got um, an opportunity specifically because, well, not specifically, but I did live in the Smoketown neighborhood, right? So maybe that, you know, was a reason why, but I also feel that if we don't have spaces where we can gather and see um, art by people of color, then we don't know that they exist in other spaces. Ladies, thank you. This has been a very dynamic conversation. I, I thank all of you for uh, joining with us today. And I thank you for all of you for joining in and participating in this conversation with us. Brianna, Dr. Story, Ashley, Kathy, thank you for your time. Uh, and Ruckus, thank you for the opportunity and the invitation for us to come together. Thanks again to everyone involved in putting together that event. Links to the participants will be posted in the show notes. And that's it otherwise for today. This is my regularly scheduled moment to remind listeners that if you are in Lexington, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Columbus, St. Louis, Nashville, Asheville, Atlanta, Charlotte, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, or Cleveland, please get in touch. I'm getting pretty good at saying that list. Let's pile in as many people as we can. Beyond that, if you have thoughts or ideas for this show or would like to get involved with Art of Gravity, send an email to info at ruckusjournal.org. If you'd like to see this and all of our projects grow, subscribe on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. I promise every little bit helps. Thanks. Until next time.